My kitchen is currently home to 45 little round bottles of beer, which can mean only one thing. There is absolutely nothing more that I can do but wait until opening the first bottle and seeing what 12 months of work tastes like. I'm Ben Richards, and in partnership with There's a Beer for That, this is Growing Beer. Hello and welcome back to a very wintry allotment and a freezing cold Richard. It's mid-November, I'm all alone up here, and I'm wearing more layers than a parcel parcel at a kid's birthday party. I'm also dipping into a pint of porter that I have next to me, something suitably dark and, and roasty and toasty to try and keep my mind off of the freezing conditions outside. This episode, we shall be looking at how the beer is getting on, how it's fermenting and what happens in that process, how the bottling went, and talking all things labels, designs and names. Now, last time we spoke, I was heading back from the brew with 15 litres of beer strapped into the passenger seat of my car. Well, that was three weeks ago, and a fair bit has happened since then. As soon as I got home, I tucked the fermenting beer into the corner of the kitchen and I left it to get on with the job. I didn't bring it up to the allotment, because it is way too cold at this time of the year, and the yeast just won't get going. Uh, but back in my kitchen, uh, it can stay at a roughly 18 to 20 degrees, and it can do so consistently. So hopefully, it reduces cleaner fermentation as possible. Now, thanks to a nice sort of even patch of weather, uh, the fact that I live in, if I'm honest, a knackered old house with cold stone floors, and by sneakily uh, shutting off the boiler without my wife noticing, it didn't go above about 19 degrees centigrade or below 17.5, and, and it's appeared to be fermenting as expected. Now, if you've never seen uh, a beer ferment, it is pretty cool. Now, for the first 12, 24 hours or so, there doesn't appear to be much activity. Uh, this is when the yeast is taking nutrients, it's taking minerals and oxygen as it builds new cells. Uh, it multiplies and it makes the enzymes needed to ferment. Now, once it's through this first phase in a few hours or a day or so, the yeast now start to consume the sugars in the wort. Uh, they start off with the simple ones like glucose and fructose, and then they move on to the more complex ones, such as maltose and maltotriose. And these are, effectively, they're just longer chains of sugars, so it takes a bit more work and different enzymes to break them down. Now, the yeast at this stage are also growing in number, and, crucially, they're producing the carbon dioxide, the ethanol, and the various different flavour compounds that we'll need in that final beer. And this stage is much more visible, as the airlock will be bubbling away and a creamy, sort of bubbly froth uh, will build up on top of the beer. And it's, it, it's genuinely amazing how much gas the fermentation produces. And it's the reason why you have to put an airlock on. Or oh, you end up with this, and, and trust me, I've done it, you end up with this misshapen, bulging tub of high pressure, which really is not ideal. And then about after a week or so from the brewing, uh, the yeast is kind of approaching its final gravity uh, and this is where the yeast has pretty much done its job converting the sugars into alcohol and it's now entering more of a sort of conditioning cleanup phase. Uh, it's getting rid of some of the unwanted flavours and it's rounding out the finished beer. The yeast will also at this point start to drop out of suspension and fall to the bottom which should start to clear the beer a little bit. Now I'm not using anything like finings uh, to try and improve the clarity of the beer so the finished thing that we end up with will still be a bit yeasty and a bit hazy but I'm not bothered about that. And this is where I found myself about eight or nine days after we spoke at the brewery, so just a few days ago. The gravity had dropped right down, which means that a lot of the sugar has been consumed by the yeast, and hopefully that will result in a beer that should come out at about 5.3%, I think. So I popped it in the fridge for 24 hours just to help uh, to encourage that yeast to 
come together uh, to cool right down and to fall out of the beer. So, hoping that the beer had fermented out, it was time to bottle. I sanitised 50 glass bottles, crown caps, and I got on with it. I, I basically uh, put a bottling wand on the end of the fermenter on the tap and lifted the bottles into it and filled each one and capped them and put them to one side. Now, it sounds all very straightforward, but there's still been a couple of problems I've had to deal with, or certainly challenges, at this phase. And the first one of these is how to work out what the final ABV, or alcohol by volume, of the beer will be. Now, the normal way to judge this is to work out the gravity, which is how much sugar is in that liquid, at the start of fermentation, maybe halfway through, and at the end. And it's a difference between the starting and finishing figure that lets you know how much sugar has been consumed by the yeast and therefore converted to alcohol. Now, normally, you would do this with a bit of kit called a hydrometer, which is it's basically a floating glass tube that shows you how much sugar is or isn't in the liquid by buoyancy. Now, the downside to this technique, from my perspective, is that to take a reading, you need to fill up a little glass tube with several hundred millilitres of, of your fermenting beer. And for a, a big batch of beer or professional brewer, this is not a problem at all. But when you only start off with 15 litres and every single drop counts, it can be a bit wasteful, really. And I didn't want to lose that much of my beer measuring the gravity as it, as it changed. So instead, I've been using a little gadget called a refractometer. Rather than rely on buoyancy and using lots of the liquid, it instead needs just three or four drops as it measures how the light refracts through that liquid. So for barely a pipette's worth of fermenting beer, I can get the readings at the start and the end of fermentation. Now it's not completely straightforward because as well as sugar refracting and changing the light as it passes through the liquid, alcohol does as well. So I need to do a little bit of looking online, find some formulae and do some calculations to make sure that I got it right. And also, secondly, when doing the actual bottling, that presented a little problem too. Normally, when you're bottling your beer, you would do something called priming. And that is to add some sugar into that now fermented beer, mix it in, and then bottle. And what this does, it just gives the yeast a little bit of a kick, a little helper to do a little tiny bit more fermentation. And that will carbonate the liquid and it will build the pressure up inside the bottle to just the right level so that when you open up, you hear that nice hiss and you get some bubbles in your beer. This is done with, say, just refined sugar or an additive like that. But in keeping with the spirit of the project, I can't just chuck in some sugar. I need to use something that's come from the plot. And if you'll cast your mind back to last week, you'll remember that I kept aside about a litre of the unfermented wort. I took it home and I put it in the freezer. And that was because that was my sugar source for the priming and the bottling. Luckily, <laughs> I'd considered it two, three weeks ago, because if I hadn't, right now, I'd be in trouble. But anyway, I defrosted it, I used an online calculator to work out how much to add to get the right amount of bubbles and, and, and popped it into the beer before bottling. It's not a common technique in home brewing, uh, but it is one that's been used before. I haven't made this one up at all. It's, it's called krausening, whereby you take some of the unfermented wort or even the fermenting wort and you add it into your finished beer so that it helps to either carbonate it for bottling, like I am now, or help to condition and clean up that beer further in a, in a bigger batch. In effect, that's the brewing done. <laughs> and now it's just a waiting game. There is very little that I can do now that will affect the outcome or the flavour or the, well, quality of that final beer come the tasting. And the final number of bottles, you ask? Well, 45 330ml bottles. Each one now just needing to be left in peace for two or three weeks before opening up. 
The question now is that, as it's a waiting game, can I ignore that box of beer every single day, walk past it every day, and not be tempted to open one early and find out how it worked out? Because, oh, it's absolutely killing me, the suspense at the moment. So to distract myself, I've given myself one more task, and that is to give our beer an identity. You know, after all of that effort, the time, and the support from so many people that's gone into this project, it only seems fair to name it and give it a proper label. Not being much of an artist myself, I have decided to enlist the help of an old friend, Jim Vine. He's a graphic designer, and he kindly sorted out the logo for the website and the project right at the start of the year. As he also said he'd give me a hand with the labelling, I decided to catch up with him in a rather noisy pub for a chat. Right, I'm in the pub. I'm with my friend Jim, who just happens to be a graphic designer. Oh. Um, hello, Jim. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? I'm very well. Where do I start? Oh, where do you start? Well, um, the first question I would ever ask you is, okay, Ben, do you have an idea? Do you, you know, you, this is your, this is your, this is your little baby here. So, well, the answer is I don't actually have an idea yet. It's, <laughs> it's designing the label and having the idea for it is on the list, but yeah. I deal with the problems like day by day as the project progresses. But this one is now rapidly getting towards the top of the list. Wow. So do I need to start thinking about themes or ideas or images? What's a good place to start with, with coming up with ideas? Well, it's one of those things where I, I just ask you the question, is there something that you imagine seeing on, on the bottle? And if the answer is no, and that's when <laughs> I get to work. Uh, years ago, I used to scroll out on paper, different ideas, and then transfer them to computer. But now I go straight to the computer, do it digitally, uh, come up with you know several unique different ideas, designs that I think and hope you would like. Yeah. Um, I try and keep them as, as different as possible. So then, you know, when I present them to you, send them to you via email, whatever, you can say, Jim, you know what? I, I, I don't like number one, three and eight, but <laughs> do you know what? I like number two uh -huh. and maybe a little bit of six. And that's when I can start honing a really good identity and brand for you, you know, a label for you. And that's where the it starts gathering momentum, really. So you don't do pen and paper as much anymore? Is it all just straight digital, straight on the computer? It depends. If you came to me and said, uh, OK, I, I would like a leopard um, riding a bicycle on the front of my beer, <laughs> I would probably start on pen and paper. I, I have to admit, I'll probably backtrack a little bit there, but I'd probably start on pen and paper, get it on the screen. I can touch it up on the screen, you know, remove all the, the, all the imperfections, make it print ready. And print ready basically means that when it, you print it, it's nice and sharp. And then once that idea has been worked through and it's, I think that's the final one. As soon as you give me the thumbs up, that's when we start going into a different, a different realm, which is printing. And that's where, you know, for probably, if you, have, if you have 45 bottles for me, I would probably recommend digital printing over lithographic printing, which is lithographic is, is not old school now. It's still, it's still being used, but it's slowly being pushed out by the digital presses. And that's the giant sort of presses, machines rolling. Yeah, you know, some, some, some presses are as long as, you know, train carriages, really. Years ago, you would have to get... Um, You'd have to get the plates made for your for the printer CMYK, which is the four plates. You know, the cyan, magenta, yellow, and the black, which is the K, and that is instantly a huge, you know, upfront cost. Nowadays, with digital presses, you don't need those plates at all. You know, you still have your four colours. You still have yeah. the CMYK, but um, they just print them faster. They dry quicker, and especially for a short run like yours, you would just yeah. need 
you you need digital for yeah. 45 So there's bottles. no setting up plates. There's no sort oh, of preparation you know beforehand. Yeah, you're cutting you're cutting everything out like that. It's it's the digital print has changed the print world so much. Uh, it's 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 crazy, really. So now you can just what send off the finished design via email design and, and it's yeah the digital press is, is just like um I, I don't really like to use this term for it but it's just like a, a glorified computer printer that you can buy anywhere really but it's just bigger it's better it's, it's the, the qualities up there and plus also it can pump out so many prints you know it'll, it'll, in the end of the day it'll probably kill off the lithographic press which is a bit sad to my heart but you know but not to me, because I need 40 or 50 <laughs> yeah. labels cheaply and easily. And that's it. And, yeah. and uh, you know, you and so many other people out there, just these short runs now. So it's worth doing it through a professional printer with a digital print system rather oh, yeah. than just using the inkjet in the corner of my living room. Oh, the inkjet, yeah. Do you know what it's going to run when, it, when you pull out the fridge and it's chilled? You know, it probably won't even have a design on the front. It'll just, <laughs> just be a blank label. Like, whose beer is this? Well, we've got this far. Let's not let the label let the whole <laughs> yeah. year work down. Okay. I know, right there. Right, okay. um, well, you'll be pleased to hear that I don't think I want a leopard on a bicycle. But oh, having, had, having had no idea so far, that is so far the only idea. <laughs> well, what are you going to call your beer? Oh, that is a question. I don't know yet. Okay. I really don't know. One of my friends suggested the other day that I just call it, ask my six-year-old daughter, because <laughs> she named the shed Richard. Richard? But I don't want to name the beer Richard. I don't <laughs> think I want to name the beer Richard. So I don't know yet. So, so far, all we have, though, is a beer called Richard, and the logo, or the label on front, is a leopard on a bicycle. <laughs> Richard tastes delicious. Um, actually, do you know what? That could probably work if you were selling this in a... It, it, you know, mass produced. You yeah. know, it would be. It, I guess it would be like the TV channel, Dave, wouldn't it? Yeah. But Do you know this whole project came about from a chat in a pub a couple of years ago, and now a chat in a pub is forming a name and a stupid label. So maybe <laughs> yeah. that's the way it's going to go. So, in essence, then, I need to give some proper thought about what the design could be like or the theme in the area it'll be around. Yeah. You would then take that and put it into a couple of ideas. Yeah, definitely. We then work through, get the final version, yeah, and then get it digitally printed and ready for the final, the final bottling and the final labelling process. That's it. That's it. You would be um, see. It's one one of those things where you, instantly, if I was to sit down and think about what I designed for you, you you've I already know that. Um, it, let's ignore the leopard on a bicycle idea <laughs> now, idea. and let's go let's go a, a bit more professional. I would instantly go by what I done you for your logo is you know it shows your roots it shows the process that you've taken i probably wouldn't uh mention pole dark like you did on <laughs> gardener's <laughs> world but uh <laughs> but who knows you know you you with your your top off might sell the bottle a few more bottles yeah it, it might not let's not go there <laughs> I, i've also thought of a name beerjamin Richards. That is a terrible name. I see you've done with the multiple puns. That is a terrible idea for a name. Benjamin Richards. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a good point to end the conversation. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully you can all hear that okay. It was a very, very busy pub. A poor choice with hindsight. But a very big thank you to Jim for his time again. Now, after speaking to him, I needed to have a serious think about the design and the name for the beer. And just a couple of days after meeting with him, I sent over a few ideas or themes that, to me at least, really sum up the beer and the project. And probably the hardest part, and the bit that I struggled with the most, and I didn't think it would be this hard, if I'm honest, was deciding on the name. 
as I really wanted to stay true to the principles of the project. I wanted something that summed up either the ingredients or the processes, you know, or even the small but distinct size or location of where this has mainly happened, the allotment. And after much procrastination and going round in circles and not, not really getting anywhere really, I decided to get a little bit of perspective on this and I asked for suggestions via social media and I got back quite a range of ideas actually. Uh, it was quite nice to see so many people come forward with their own ideas having followed online or listened to the podcast or even seen it on, on TV or heard it on radio. Now, in alphabetical order, the suggestions are <clears throat> Air allotment, all nature's work Allotted, allotment ale, allotment gold, autarkic, beer has grown. Uh, lots of people just told me to ask Isabel again, which I did. Um, and you'd never guess from her answer that she's been reading a lot of Roald Dahl at the moment. Her suggestion was Ben's brilliant bottle of beer. Others were Ben's sacrifice, graining blood, grass roots, ground to glass, growing beer, grown, homegrown, homegrown gold, off your mc off your face, Richard, Richard II, square yard, urban struggle, weary reaper and yardcraft. Now, <laughs> there are some great names in the list, and there are some not-so-great ones, but regardless of how much I liked a name, having all of them there was it was just a wonderful way of focusing my mind on what was important. So, two days later then, I had chosen the name. I'd worked out the final design with Jim, and sent it off to the printers. There was no going back now. And that, with the bottles primed and capped, the labels being printed, left me just the final tasting to organise. Now you may have noticed that things are starting to get very close together. Ten weeks ago when we first started talking together, before there was even a shed, I was talking about the freezing cold of January storms. Whereas now, you are pretty much hearing this in real time. There is just a matter of days between activities happening and this podcast coming out. So the last episode, next week, will be recorded just three days before you hear it. As we get toward the end of the project, I've also been having a little look at the year in numbers, and it's produced some for me at least, some quite funny statistics, some that I would never have expected when I was starting off earlier in the year. Over the 12 months of growing beer, around 35 people have directly helped me in some capacity, either offering their expertise, physically doing something, promoting the project, or joining me on this podcast. They've helped me to get to that final 3.8, 3.9 kilograms of malted barley, a few hundred grams of hops, two yeasts, and 50 litres of rainwater that have ended up becoming about 15 litres of hopefully drinkable beer. I worked out that I've spent roughly 670 hours on either the plot, the ingredients, the beer, the podcast, or the various bits and pieces of social media, radio and TV. And those features, in turn, either online, in papers or on TV, mean that over 3 million people have learnt more about the project or learnt a bit more about beer and brewing, which to me is just an absolutely amazing number. But not my favourite number. Uh, it was whilst looking at these figures that I realised I may have created the least commercially viable beer ever brewed. I'm not suggesting for a second that anybody would actually approach a, a brew like I have or bring in experts to help them on a regular basis for such a tiny amount of beer. But if I were to try and sell this beer and break even, the price is just eye-watering. If everybody who helped me had charged me for their time, and some very, very knowledgeable, very serious experts and famous people have really just helped me so much with this project. And if I counted my time at £10 per hour, what do you think the cost per pint would be? Now I'll give you a second to think about that. So actually think it through and say it out loud. Ready? Well, the total cost per pint of this beer would be 
£1,026 per pint, which means that each of those precious little 330 milliliter bottles would cost £596 each. Now, I was expecting this number to be high because of the amount of time needed throughout the project, but the summer weather and the resulting tiny barley harvest caused it to quadruple, hence nearly £600 a bottle. Now, I'm not selling this batch. It was never meant to be a retailed commercial product. Uh, I'm not making any money on this, I mean, you know, not by a long way. I'm not even breaking even on this project. It's really been about an experiment to see if it's possible, and it's been so much fun so far. Now, of course, <laughs> all of that said, if anybody would like to buy a bottle, you're very, very welcome. I can put one aside. Uh, feel free to get in touch um, <laughs> if you'd like to pay the bargain price of £595 for what is a very exclusive little beer. And I think that brings us up quite nicely to right now. There is just one week to go until I get together with about 10 or 12 of the people that have helped out and we all crack open a bottle. And before that, though, I'm going to be doing something very, very stressful for me. Rather than just open it in private and see how it is and then have a tasting party, I've decided to do something that I think you'll enjoy and I'm going to really struggle with. I'm going to be catching up with Adrian Tierney-Jones, who is an award-winning beer writer and he's a globe-trotting international beer judge. He is going to be opening the very first bottle just ahead of the tasting party and directly for the podcast before I've tried it. And he is going to critically evaluate it with his judging hat on. I am both extremely excited and utterly terrified at the same time. So, please do join me next week for the final episode to see how both I and the beer fare in this self-inflicted trauma find out what it was called and how it tastes. Joining me as I celebrate a year of highs, lows, catch up with some friends old and new from the project and, fingers crossed, do so with something drinkable in my glass. See you then, friends. Goodbye.